All right, welcome to another great episode of Black Equity. I'm excited for this conversation. Uh, we get to dive into a topic that I think is going to be very important as we move into a new economy, a new way of life. Uh, with so much that is going on right now, I think it's very important to have this conversation. Uh, on the line, we have uh, Ken Gibbs Jr. Uh, once again, Ken Gibbs Jr., and he is the di uh, foremost digital executive in the African-American content space, and most recently has served as the Vice President of Digital Video and Social Media Marketing for BET Networks. Uh, Ken Gibbs Jr., thank you for coming on Black Equity. No doubt, sir. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. No, definitely. So tell us, for those who do not know, tell us a little bit more about uh, you and how you got into this space. Got it. Uh, so I'm originally from Boston, and I graduated college, which took my last course in around 1999. So it was the tail end of the dot-com boom. It was just about to burst. But every day in the news, all you saw was startups, startups, startups. So I was thinking to myself, you know, how can I get involved in this? At that time, I was sitting on the sidelines, teaching myself HTML, learning how to code, building web pages because the opportunity to just go so far beyond Boston through the internet to me was just incredible. And it was it was something that allowed me to see how I could overcome the limits that were becoming so much, so much more visible to me at that stage in my life. I was at Fitchburg State College at that time, which is now Fitchburg State University. Um, and I was a double major with an AA minor, uh, English, professional writing, communications, technical writing. And part of the communications major, I had to do an internship. Now, I wanted to go to the West Coast, right? That's where all the uh, dot-com action was happening. However, part of the college's requirement was that you couldn't get paid for your internship, all right? Um, from the inner city of Boston, very modest means, there was no way I could travel to the West Coast and get an internship working 40 hours a week and not work, right? And I wasn't looking to work 80 hours a week. So I basically looked for the closest dot-com opportunity to me. And in the newspaper of all places, I found um, an opportunity at Africana.com. For people who aren't familiar, Africana.com was, uh, well, it was created by Henry Louis Gates, Anthony Appia, Harry Lasker. Um, these are Harvard professors, some of the people behind the origins of Sesame Street as well. Uh, and they were operating out of Harvard's Afro-Am program. So they were looking for an entertainment editor. Uh, I went in, interviewed for the position, and at the end, I was like, my caveat is that I'll work for three months for free, all right? Because it was part of the internship and they were, you know, a startup, see the candidate who can work for free, they were like, you're, you're hired, right? But <laughs> Good <all> strategy. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But you know what also, what, what really got me the opportunity was that uh, a young man came out to interview me uh, and his name was Philippe Wamba. Uh, Philippe Wamba was the son of Wamba Dia Wamba, who was like the rebel leader in the DRC at that time. Um, he had uh, authored a book called Kinship because his, his father had married his mother, who was from, I believe, the Mississippi area. And it was about African-American and African culture. But long story short, he had an affinity for uh, reggae music. Right. Uh, if you know anything about Boston, Mattapan, it's 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 a Caribbean neighborhood as well. Uh, and most people actually come from Jamaica, they go to the festival there, and then the week later they travel to New York, go to the festival here, and then they go back to JA. But because of that, Philippe was familiar with my neighborhood, 
All right. Um, and he was impressed. He was like, wow, you know, you sought us out. You've made your way all the way over here. I'm familiar with Mattapan. I understand how, you know, people from your area don't get these types of opportunities and basically kind of took me under his wing and, and began to mentor me. So that's how I got into the digital um, game. I, I came in, I interned at Africana after the, after the internship was over. They offered me a position there um, and so from there from entertainment editor we were very soon after bought by time warner uh and that was just before time warner itself was acquired by aol um so in an instant we went from a small office on top of Sabon, which is across the street from harvard yard in cambridge uh with an editorial office so small that i could literally lean back and and touch everyone and answer the phone which I did when they weren't in the, in the office, uh, to a huge suite on 955 Mass Ave that AOL had purchased or rented rather. And they also threw some uh, AOL MapQuest people in there as well. Um, but then, you know, soon after, I think everyone knows AOL started to have its trouble as the internet just started to change in itself. Uh, and they started to get deeper into the content business as well. So they bought the, um, Black Voices company in an all-stock deal from the Tribune company. And at that time, Black Voices was the second largest online community for African-Americans behind Community Connect and Black Planet. Uh, and Africana, which originally began as uh, two physical products, right? A large book, the Africana Encarta, and then a CD-ROM because it was in partnership with Microsoft. So while the website kind of began as a place for uh, African diasporic communication and news, it slowly transformed into a daily publication because that's what you began to see online. So uh, AOL saw the wisdom in merging the content from Africana.com with the community of Black Voices. Uh, Black Voices being the bigger property is the name ultimately that we went with in the end. So we, um, we shut down those offices in Cambridge and then those who could, I was young, nimble, no attachments, straight out of school, uh, went down to Delta VA to work on uh, relaunching this AOL, what would come to be AOL Black Voices. Um, so during that time, I flew into Dallas VA and AOL headquarters on Monday of every week and flew out on Friday and did that for about a year, um, staying in a hotel down in the Adams Morgan area. Uh, it, was, it was night and day from Boston, right? My first time on a big campus like that, a big digital campus, um, and it was amazing. You know, amazing. AOL was kind of running the world then. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing that little yellow running man, the the diamond, or, or those discs everywhere, all right? Um, but then soon after, AOL, as they got deeper into the content game, recognized that New York is where content lives, right, for the most part, especially at that time when you're transitioning out of, of heavy magazine culture as well. The magazine is kind of having a more dominant role than they do today in that space. Um, so AOL started to transition their content operations to New York. AOL Music, then they purchased Movie Fund. Those guys all sat in New York. Um, and one of my mentors at that point, I was I was looking to stay in D.C., right? Uh, D.C., was, it was still Chocolate City around that time. Um, and I, I was having a great time, you know, uh, working at AOL, loving the campus, what have you. Um, but really wanted to do more in the digital media space, not just in AOL, which was, it was a walled garden for all intents and purposes. Uh, so one of my mentors was like, hey, you know, because I was looking at a position that would keep me there. Um, he was like, nah, you got to be in New York, 
get out. You need to relocate to New York. You have no idea what, what you're missing there. And I was like, okay, you know, he had come from New York. His name was actually um, Gary Dauphin uh, because Philippe Wamba at this point, and this was just, this was 9-11, I believe the year just before uh, the, the terrorist incident. Um, but so Philippe was, um, he had received the, the MacArthur Grant um, and was working on a, a book in Kenya and unfortunately passed away in a tragic car crash. Wow. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. So um, at that point, we had gotten Gary Dauphin, who was the editor-in-chief at Black Planet, to take his place uh, mm. in leadership. And so Gary went on to mention me in that position. Uh, and Gary, having come from New York, was like, no, you, you got to get to the city. Uh, and so they relocated me to New York. Uh, I ultimately um, progressed to programming director uh, so I was no longer just responsible for the entertainment vertical um, within BET. But then I would also lend my talents at times, working closely with the AOL music team um, when uh, they would have Black artists in for AOL sessions and what have you. Oftentimes, I would be the one leading the interviews on the other side of the camera. Because also just, you know, my passion is not only technology, but music, art, and culture as well. So I was freelancing for magazines in the New York area, whether it be The Source or um, XXL too. Uh, so yeah, that's that's how I got to New York. Um, when I was in New York, still working with AOL, uh, I still had a team that was majority based in Dulles VA. So for the longest time, I was still flying down to Dulles um, on Monday, staying until Wednesday and really only in New York for Thursday and Friday until all of our content operation was transitioned to New York. Um, and really the CCs, and that's, that's what they call the, the, the buildings on the AOL campus, CC one, two, three, four, or what have you, um, until things got bad and they started selling them off. But when we transitioned all of our content team to New York, that's when that stopped for me. Um, but in New York, you know, it was, it was very evident that AOL was holding its position because of the stranglehold it had on distribution in the early days of the internet, right? People didn't necessarily know how to access it without something like AOL. Right. Um, but from a media perspective, it wasn't necessarily a respected brand, right? Um, and I wanted to be in the game, you know, I wanted to be in a competitive position. And so I started to look at other opportunities. Now, um, on all those flights that I was taking, whether it was from Dulles to New York, Dulles to Boston, what have you, um, there was a time where AOL had a jet. It was basically like a school bus that would shuttle executives from New York to Dallas back and forth. Um, and while I was on this jet often, I would just strike up conversation. It would be a lot of sales guys who were on there. Um, and I met a man named Tom, Tom Newman. Tom went on to uh, become friends with Kathy Hughes, Alfred Liggins, and that team, um, and ultimately became the president of their um, digital venture, Interactive One. So Tom, he took a, a good guy from AOL, Spencer Slow, who was a product guy with him over there. I was always leveraging um, Spencer's technology for the experiences that we were creating on, B, um, on Black Voices. So Spencer gave me a call. I um, was like, hey, man, you know, we're putting this thing together. I think it'd be real cool. You should come check it out. So I, I went, met with them, uh, Alfred Liggins and team as well. And so I decided to join Interactive One. Um, Smokey Fontaine was there as well. I was like the, the fifth employee over there. And so within that area, I did a couple of things, right? Um, one, helped them with the 
strategy to put all of the radio stations on a coherent network, right? Uh, radio One, a radio company, at that point, 50 plus radio stations um, spread out across the country, all on individual infrastructures, which did not give their sales team an opportunity to actually have nationwide campaigns, geo-targeted campaigns, even consistent content franchises, right? None of that is possible when every one of the radio stations are on individual infrastructures. So built a team, brought people in to help us um, accomplish that. Uh, but then also the content verticals, right? The interact, um, News One, the Urban Daily, Elevate, um, Hello Beautiful, which Avery DuVernay named that she was a part of our team back then. Um, and so we built out those content verticals. Uh, and that's obviously kind of the, at that point when monetization online was really about display advertisement, right? That was kind of the phases that you would see like, oh, do you have an entertainment channel? Do you have a lifestyle channel, a news channel? Uh, really what we had done at AOL as well. So we just did that at Interactive One. Um, it's always build or buy. I, I came to build ultimately as the, um, the nature of the space changed and they needed to bring some money in, uh, they chose to buy. Right, so they bought Community Connect. I stayed around to participate in the due diligence of it as well, um, kind of going through all aspects, letting them know the pros, the cons, what have you. Wasn't necessarily something that I was in support of, but I understood the need and the move, right? Uh, so that's what they chose to do. And I stayed on throughout that process. Uh, we were in temporary offices until after the actual acquisition, at which point we all moved into the Community Connect headquarters. Uh, but shortly after that, uh, I actually decided to take my talents elsewhere. And it was a result of um, really some of my old school network. Right. So when I was at AOL, not only did I work closely with the folks at AOL Music, I also worked closely with um, Harvey and the team over at TMZ because TMZ was a JV between AOL and Warner Brothers back then. So being, being um, the entertainment guy in the early on, I was always on their radar, always on their radar. And, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, Media was was very simple. If there was a white one, you would make a black one, right? Yeah. So, CRL, you get 106 on par, right? Yeah. You don't need raps, you get to rap city, and these things were kind of starting to happen in the digital space. And black voices, uh, in comparison to the other AOL entities, was pretty small, right? So I was like, we we had we had John Murray. Karu Daniels, they were doing entertainment-focused columns for us, um, but not along the lines of a TMZ, because, you know, the relationships between writers and artists within the Black community, particularly at that point when people were actually seeing people and engaging with people and not just writing salacious blogs about them from afar with absolutely no contact, right? They would, they would value those relationships, so they wouldn't be as salacious as a TMZ or what have you. Um, but the TMZ conversations, they would be like, oh, well, you know, should we have a black one? Should there be a black mm. TMZ? And I was like, mm, no, no. How about we just make sure you're aware of who the black talent is, right? So that right, you can actually right. integrate them and put them on par with, with some of the white talent that's over there as well. Um, but those, long story short, those guys reached out to me. Uh, and it was Leslie Pinkney. Uh, I knew one of the people on the sales side as well. Um, and also Bob Moeller, um, an exec on the Warner Brothers side, uh, to really come lead a JV between 
Warner Brothers and Essence on the digital production side that would allow them to create inventory as they did with TMZ um, and then sell it, right? Uh, they recognized that the black female audience was a lucrative one. And if you had a strong partner in there, there could be a lot of money to be made. So left Interactive One, went to join the team over at Essence. I believe it was like the 15th anniversary of the Essence Music Festival that year. It was, it was an anniversary year. Um, Beyonce was performing. It was big. Okay. Um, one of the things that made it difficult in a, a focus for us, though, was that it was also the recession. Right. Right. So it was uh, it, there was concern that uh, that might lead to, you know, less less people attending than usual. So we put together campaign strategies that allowed it for long lead promotion, worked on uh, layaway tactics and what have you for tickets just to ensure that that demo would still be able to afford and actually attend. Um, so for all intents and purposes, I basically ran like an internal digital studio within Essence. Um, we were on Warner Brothers Network. Uh, we had Warner Brothers email addresses. Uh, we didn't impact the editorial in any way. Our job was really to create digital inventory uh, and then execute. Right. Right. Uh, they also had a vertical ad network at that point. Um, a vertical ad network, for those who aren't familiar, um, were basically an opportunity for third-party blogs to assign their traffic publicly to an entity that would then sell the inventory, right? So there's, there's documentation where you've got to send to the actual blogger where they'll say, okay, you know, in Comscore, Net Nielsen, what have you we are assigning our traffic to this entity. So that then when advertisers look at that entity in Comscore, they see a number that's an aggregate of all of the blogs within the network, right? Um, so that it was the Real Black Network. Um, the Real Black Network had not been properly maintained, right? That was one of the first things that I realized um, when I began to engage bloggers who were in this network. Uh, so I reached out to all individually, introduced myself, let them know that there would be changes, that they would be getting checks, right? Um, and it was, it was great, quite honestly. It was great to interface with so many entrepreneurs in the space. Uh, and, and they seemed appreciative, quite honestly, because at that point, I believe I was making the partnership what they had originally envisioned it would be when they were reached out to kind of buy this story brand. Uh, and, they, and at one point, the Real Black Network was accounting for over 45% of Essence's traffic um, and Comscore. Wow. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was great, great, um, especially when you just think about engaging with the community and what have you. Um, but ultimately, we kind of ran into the problems that many people do. Um, and when you're when you're creating digital inventory for a sales team, that's not net native, right? Um, the print sales team just was not able to sell all of the inventory that we were creating. Right. And ultimately after just, just over, just under two years, I believe, uh, WB ultimately decided to, to dissolve the JV uh, and they went their separate ways, right? But I think kind of in hindsight, what that did for the Essence brand um, during that time was really convince Time Warner leadership that may not have been um, so supportive of the value of the brand in the digital space. So I do think that although um, WB pulled out, 
after that, Time Warner truly leaned in to, to try to really leverage that brand and understand how some of the things that it was doing could be applied to some of the other brands within the portfolio and create new revenue streams. Awesome. Um, Go ahead. So, so that's okay. So essence, uh, so after essence, you know, took some time to start my family, right. Had my first child, uh, and we had cast out my contract. So I had an opportunity to just stay home for a little bit, um, and be a part of that, which was invaluable. Um, and then chose to get back in the startup space. Um, Daryl Williams, an economist out of the White House, had been sniffing around looking for a digital uh, lead to help him with his venture, Loop 21, right? He had this, as an economist, he had a vision of Loop 21 being a destination that would poll African-Americans throughout the country, they would sell the data, what have you. And I was like, okay, um, I, could, I could see that possibly happening. Right. Uh, so it allowed me to get back in the game working from home while also raising my son as my wife eased back into the workforce. And I completely relaunched the site. Right. I mean, at this point, so I'm COO and executive editor. I'm working completely remotely. I've got writers, editors, designers spread throughout the country. Um, those who are here based in New York, we would meet once a month um, and we'd actually operate out of the Soho house. Right. Wow. Um, so there it was, it was great, right? Quite honestly, we're launching something from soup to nuts, putting together an RFP, bringing in design agencies, build, relaunching the site, Drupal-based from the ground up. I was able to build it as I thought it should be. Um, but the thing that was happening was monetization was changing in the digital space, right? Mm. Moving from display advertising to more video, pre-roll, mid-roll, post-roll all of that. Um, but still, we continue to move forward and try to build an audience. Um, two young men who I brought on the team early on, uh, Aaron Morrison, who's leading diversity at um, diversity reporting at, at the AP right now. He's doing a lot of great work on the racial disparities of COVID. Check that out. Um, but then also um, Wesley Lowry. Wesley Lowry, I think Aaron introduced us to Wesley. We brought Wesley on um, straight out of school. And I think it was like 48 hours after coming on, Wesley Lowry found George Zimmerman during the Trayvon Martin um, scandal. Uh, Wesley hit me late that night and I'm, I'm, I swear this is Sam. I got, I'm dialoguing with George Zimmerman. We verified it. Um, the next morning we, we began to publish about that as well. Uh, and a day later, Wesley Lowry was on CNN, Hannity and Combs, Good Morning America. Uh, so within an instant, we had taken loop21.com from being relatively unknown, right, to over a million uniques and with writing staff on nationally syndicated shows, mm. right? Uh, we're a player immediately. Right, immediately. Um, but then, you know, Founder and I had differences about where we needed to go in order to maintain that trend, quite honestly. Um, and, you know, as my family began to grow, I had to get out of the startup space uh, because, you know, I just had bigger needs for revenue. Um, so, BET, right? Uh, BET, which was so interesting because. Uh, so when I was at BET, I told Lewis Carr and Ray Goldberg, the sales leads over there, that uh, every opportunity in my career exists because of an opportunity that BET didn't take advantage of. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, 
you know, I'm in the black digital media business. BET's got a, a hell of a lead, right, in terms of time and resources on everyone. Um, but they're a TV network who seem to operate as though TV would be the end-all, be-all forever, right? right. And so as audiences transition to other platforms, you know, this, this, this titan was nowhere to be found. So um, uh, I got a call from a, a friend who was working at BET, and they were like, you know, they, they could really use you over here on the team, right? Uh, I'm working with somebody. They're great. I think you all would really get along. Can I share your info with them? I was like, hey, you know what? Go ahead. Let's make it happen. What I had never actually thought about, about the brand, in all honesty, because from a digital perspective, they, they appeared to be behind and slow. Right. right. Uh, and I was looking to maintain and be on the forefront. Um, but when I got there, there were great people, quite honestly. It was just, just really great people. And I was like, wow. I was Monique Ware, Martez Moore, Lisa Jalopter, uh, a really good team. And I was like, okay, you know, I think we can do great things here. I want to be a part of this. Interestingly enough, Essence had also called me. And literally, I took both meetings on that day. Oh, <laughs> bidding war. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Essence was, I, uh, I, I had given Essence an SOW, and they were, they were interested in talking with me about coming back to, ju- to do the Essence Music Festival purely on the digital strategy side. Okay. Right? Uh, so Essence thinking purely about the festival alone, which was fun to me, but it was also limiting. BET offered me the opportunity to cross one mm. plat- one last platform off of my list, right? Now, you got to remember, I walked into a startup straight out of school. I knew everything about the web, but I realized that the web was innovating on techniques that had existed in all previous platforms prior, right? So right. I learned about radio at Radio One. I learned about print at Essence. I'd never been at a network. The situation at Radio One and Interactive One was that TV One was almost a completely different entity, kind of more led by the Comcast side of the family. So I didn't get the insight that I was looking for into the world of TV. So the BET opportunity offered me that within cable. But then during our interview, they were also like, and we're going to be launching a three-day festival called the BET Experience that you could also lead the digital strategy on. Nice. And I was like, oh, this this is what I'm looking for then. Um, Because experiential... Experiential is the next. This is the next step, right? Where I, th- I still think VR is way out. Like nobody really wants to put a bucket on their head and 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 just be there, right? right. AR will I think will be there. We just need some sort of device. Um, but you know the phones won't do it forever. Technology will have to cross into the real world, and experiential allows us to kind of see the the early stages of that. So I really wanted to make sure that I continue to go in that direction. Um, so I came into BET as um, director of operations. Uh, they did not have, uh, you know, a big operation, so it didn't really take long to kind of um, to, to 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 get it together, right? And after that, um, I started to speak with them about some of the other things I had done at other places, like branded content. Right? Um, I partnered with some of my internal peers, uh, Jomo Davis, JP Lespinas, and we put together a pitch deck to bring to Martez Moore, um, who was the uh, president of digital at that time, about content opportunities that we could do. And, beca- and 
So just to back up and let you know where this was coming from, basically at that point, um, digital revenue was like, oh, shows are in season, shows are out of season. Shows are in season, shows are out of season. It was, they were, they were exploiting the luxury of people coming to the, to the websites based on their interest in the shows, right? Right, right. But they hadn't created that other opportunity where they, they could actually have more consistency in their balance sheet, right? So I was like, hey, uh, oh, and also I was there purely to support Linear, right? If it's on TV, I manage the digital side of it. But right. that, that's a small side of the world, especially when you think about what the Black audience is doing on the web. So we approached Martez like, hey, you know, this is what we think you can do in ways that you can bring in revenue when our blockbuster shows are out of season. Uh, we first presented it to Monique, our, our media boss. She gave it the green light, helped grease the wheels for us and brought us into Martez. Martez let us get two pages in and was like, done. You can get the money. Awesome. Awesome. Right. Great news. Yeah, you know, I was like, wow, okay. So, you know, we were all nervous. Like, Mar Martez is like big McKenzie exec, all that. But he saw it, right? He saw it right away. Uh, so long story short, we immediately went out and we shot two pilots. One, one pilot was with um, Mac Wiles right, on mm -hmm. Stack Island. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other pilot was with the new internet celebrity, D-Nice, right? <laughs> so, Shout out to D-Nice. Exactly. You've been holding it down for the last few weeks. Holding it down, right. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we shoot these pilots. We bring them both, present them. They love them, right? Oh, and the pilots are blocks. It's hashtag BLX. And it's literally what it sounds like. Us off camera with the celebrity on their block that they grew up on, hmm. you insight into how that place and those people in that community helped shape them into the person who you came to know and love through whatever their creative output may be. Right, nice. Uh, and it's, it's simple, right? It's simple. It's, um, there, it's, it's straight to camera all the way. You never see the producers on our side. Um, and it's, it's also meant to be a subtle commentary on gentrification. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, because if you grew up in Brooklyn in like the 80s, right, when you're going back to that block today, part of the conversation will be how it's changed. Right. Right. Um, which is something that we think, well, we thought from a brand perspective was important, but also nothing that you really want to browbeat the audience about. Right. You really wanted to just be that subtle conversation. Um, so we did that. It actually appeared in the upfronts, the BET upfronts that year. Um, Toyota came on for a sponsor. We thought that was ideal because blocks takes you all around the country uh, and Toyota's slogan is going places. So we worked that uh, into the opening and what have you. And they, they signed on for, for three seasons as a title sponsor. All right. Um, and so from there, um, as, as director of operations, you know, I, I went on, I was on fast track, I became senior director, the first VP of digital video and social media as well. Um, and soon after, um, you know, I think from a brand perspective right now, everyone expects brands to publicly have positions on, on everything that their customers are thinking of. For a brand like BET, it's interesting in that for the longest time, all I had to do was exist, 
right? Like yeah. it's kind of a, an entity born out of a need that even though, you know, race relations in the country aren't what we need them to be, that you are seeing more diversity on different channels as well. Right, so that that need alone for distribution isn't there, but there is a need for um, conversation, right? Yes, yes. Have perspective, um, but that can go left. You know, that's that's a hard thing to do. And um, so soon after becoming the VP of social media, I we um we were heading into the BET Awards, which is a, the biggest thing ever for BET each year. Um, shows being planned, put together, uh, and then suddenly Prince passes away. Mm. Uh, which means instantly that the show lineup is going to change Yeah, at that point. So strategically on our end, um, because again, part of my job, not only from, for handling the monetization, is the marketing, the organic and paid marketing on digital platforms of these shows. So in building that awareness, one of the things we sought to determine was, okay, between from right now and to when the show starts, who else could have an opportunity to possibly do some sort of dedication to Prince that might make ours seem redundant in June, right? Or right. just unnecessary. Right? Um, and there was one, the Billboard Awards. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were watching it, looking at their lineup, seeing what they were going to do. Stephen Hill actually attended the show, called me from backstage uh, because I had presented. Debbie was the president at this time. I presented her, Stephen, Vicky Free, the CMO. Um, as well, I presented them with uh, a possible option. I was like, hey, so they're going to have Madonna. She's going to do a dedication to Prince and what if it sucks, right? Like maybe we should have some sort of social response, right? Not necessarily a jab at her, but in doing our research around this, I realized that they're like, I think now these rabid fan groups like the Beehive or the Barbs mm -hmm. uh, are kind of typical, but like the predecessor to that was, was Prince and Prince fans, right? That is facts. <laughs> so Before I, social media, right? Yeah, way before, right? I mean, you got to think about all the innovative things this guy was doing mm -hmm. to really leverage those fans too. Right. Um, and now when you've got an opportunity for them to speak publicly in mass and move as a horde, I was like, hey, if, if she doesn't do it right, they're going to savage her. Right. Right? Um, but either way, we can be a part of it. We can... We can conquest and be a part of this conversation. So we prepared a few different creatives uh, that were range from like tame all the way to nuclear, and was like, "Hey, you know, <laughs> we will basically gauge the internet response to her performance, and whatever we think, whichever way we think the fans are going, we'll drop something that we think is appropriate and in line with it." Right? Uh, they savaged her. Savaged like, uh, so when Stephen called me from backstage, he was like, hey, you know, Stevie's here, you know, should we still do it? And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. like, like we, we, we got to move forward, you know? Right. It's like, but again, it's not about him, right? It's just about, hey, we're going to do it too. If, if Stephen wants to, he can be a part of our tribute, you know? Right. Our real purpose is to let people know that the real official tribute will happen on the BET Awards. Uh, so long story short, we thought... She did not do the best job. We mm -hmm. dropped a nuclear option that very simply said, <laughs> yeah. Nuclear option, I love it. <laughs> it just says, uh, uh, it was like, and I can send you the video, I still got the file, but it was designed by my guy, Ed Coutain. 
and it says like, uh, yeah, don't worry, we saw that, we got you. And then the BET Awards day, date, and time. You know, press send, go to sleep, wake up the next morning, it's everywhere. And uh, it's on, long story short, we could not have afforded the amount of publicity that that single tweet brought us. Yeah. Um, So, you know, less than a month of sitting in that seat, the higher ups at the organization were convinced like, oh, okay, you know, like maybe this social media thing is, is, it could work for us. Because back then they're still debating if social media is, is the right avenue to take. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. People didn't see the significance at all because it's very hard to say, okay, these eyeballs are translating into linear viewers. Right. right? Um, but at its core, if you believe in the concept of advertising, right, and that these eyeballs will somehow translate into people on the product, then you've got to believe in the efficacy of social media. Right. There's a couple of things that I'm hearing throughout this conversation. Now, I want to preface this by saying, if there's anything I ask that you're not allowed to answer, I completely understand. Okay. Just say, hey, I no comment, right? I noticed that a lot of these Black brands are owned by non-Black companies. Mm-hmm. Am, am, I, am I sensing the right thing here? Or is, is yeah. that correct? Okay. With the exception of, what is it? The root that Barry Allen owns, the root, right, and that just happened recently. Yeah, yeah, but for the most part, there's there's nothing, nothing that's black owned that I'm aware of. So, I've always wanted to ask this question. I just never knew who to ask. Mm -hmm. I think you might be the person to ask because you've been in these different rooms. Because with these companies being owned by white companies or white owned companies. Is that ever that is that presence ever felt when you're in these rooms, or does it really feel like uh, we have complete say, we have complete control over these uh, black targeted brands? I'd have to say in the rooms that I've been in, and they've been pretty close to the top. I'm mm-hmm. obviously, you know, not the president, not sitting in those rooms, but I will say I've always felt as though the people who are in leadership positions at the brand are in control. Okay. Now, that does mean there'll be very uncomfortable conversations, quite honestly, because race is complicated, period. Right. Uh, For instance, when we launched AOL Black Voices, there were over 600 emails in that day to AOL. Like, why do you need a Black Voices? Where's my white voices? All of that. And the white staff at AOL were kind of like, oh, like we hadn't anticipated this right no and so then you've got people having conversations that we should actually really all be having right Mm -hmm. but we're having them in a constructive way in a corporate environment so that's actually one of the things that i found was most interesting about it um the one thing i will say though and that i i have felt the brand somewhat suffer from is you know you've got to ask if it's a is it a media company or a civil rights organization Right, because great question. The you know the the focus of each is uniquely different, and will simply mean that because one can do things for the community that the other cannot. Period. I mean, they're we're in business, so their perspective is just going to be different. Um, and when you're in a moment like right now, quite honestly, where black culture seems to be 
uh, it, black culture is pop culture and being acknowledged as such, right? What do these entities, black entities need to do to maintain their position, right? Uh, and to, or, or benefit more so from their position in relationship with the black community and audience. Something else you also mentioned earlier in this conversation, uh, it stood out to me when you said it, is you had to leave, I believe it was AOL at the time, um, because it may not have been a, as much of a respected brand, hmm. right? Is that an accurate statement so far? From a media perspective, Okay. Yeah. My question, and I think this may be, uh, what comes from this question may be uh, one of the groundbreaking things. What, do, what does a respected brand do that a non-respected brand doesn't do? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, so a few different things, right? A few different things. And it's not as simple as just the respect alone, right? Because in many instances, that respect has been earned over time. So it's connected to a legacy, right? Okay. AOL was powerful from its distribution standpoint, but it was also the tip of the spear in a burgeoning field, right? Uh, you you could argue when you look at everything today, it was just so big because it was first, right? Um, but I would argue that the respected brands uh, do more for the artist, and it's strictly speaking about the artist, uh, especially in the eyes of the audience, it's what it means that you've been acknowledged by that legacy, right? Like, it's like um, like it was to have the quotable in the source years ago, right? right. I, could, I could put out a tweet as Ken Gibbs and say, that's a quotable, nobody would care. Right. right? But it's like, no, this is the source, right? right. This is the Bible, you've got that. Um, and, and so how does that happen? right the content the work that you've done over the years right and AOL just hadn't had the time to put that together right? simply didn't exist long enough so even though they had AOL sessions which were musical performances the only thing at the time that was really big about it was you know uh, you're probably not going to get to see this artist perform until it's Grammys, BET Awards something like that right so we're just giving you this performance online on demand that you can now that's ubiquitous, like the artists are performing on Instagram, YouTube, all that, right? Uh, so I think that's really where it came from. Another question that popped in my mind while I'm listening to you, because you dropped so many gems uh, as you're sharing your story. You mentioned at BET, um, you went with the sponsorship with to to uh, Toyota. Mm -hmm. What stood out in my mind with that was, it sounded like there, there were other... Uh, at least other options on the table. If you could take me through the process of choosing the right sponsorship. I, I know you talked about how uh, their tagline uh, went perfectly with the brand, but how do you find these sponsors? And then how do you choose these sponsors? And then how do you attract them long enough to sign a three-year uh, contract to want to be you know, the title sponsor? Got it, got it. So a few different things, right? Uh, cash rules. Plain and simple, cash rules. So when you talk about determining the best sponsor for this content, uh, I wish we could be um, so finicky, quite honestly. But at the end of the day, in my position and what the internal process would be is that we would, and so to, to back up for a second, because I got this, uh, this, we did something different with the process of selling this show 
um, blocks that they were not doing at BET, right? It was it was what I had done when I was at AOL and other places, quite honestly. But they just this was not part of the BET DNA. Like shooting a pilot, no, that's that's just not how they were doing things, right? Um, I knew we needed to shoot the pilot a in order to let the clients know right like hey this is what the product looks like this is where your brand can be inserted what have you but that also gave something tangible to the sales team to go out and sell to right right? so that this concept i'm sure it was in front of toyota it was in front of walmart it was in front of sprite right and ultimately i think because everyone's got a number that they've got to hit you're trying to see who can ask who's going to give you the most for this, right? Plain and simple. Now, the synergy with the tagline, more coincidental than anything else, quite honestly. And also, sales is extremely relationship-driven, right? Who do you know as a sales rep over there who is buying, right? They're often reaching out to you. We've got this client who's got this product coming. We need to move it during this time. Do you have inventory that is ready, right? And is it going to be or likely to be organically successful, right? Which means that it could actually deliver us impressions, get our brand in front of people far beyond the number that we're actually targeting. And then for you internally means that you don't have to spend money on boosting that content, right? Which isn't just eating away at your margin also. You talked about those relationships. I'm, you know, as you're taking me into this world, you, you probably are talking to people outside of the actual um, work team that you're, you know, that you're talking to on a daily basis. You know, you mentioned paying attention to Billboard and paying attention to other brands. You really have your eyes on the entire landscape that's out there that may, other people would see, oh, that's just a competition. So don't pay attention to the competition. But you're saying, no, you know, pay attention to the whole gamut so you know what's going on around you. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's a must. And also something that I've discovered over the years is, is is native to digital employees, professionals, right? Uh, something happens on radio, something happens on TV, you see something in the magazine, you're going to snap a picture of it, tweet it out, post it on the ground, right? You're watching something on TV, you'll, you'll get a little bit of that video, post it on the internet, right? everything is kind of funneling down to the web. So if you're on the web, you've got to be aware, right? Uh, For instance, you might have a a big content execution that's going to drop today. There might be something that's happening today that is going to just completely drown you out, right? right? Completely. And, or it could make you seem extremely tone deaf, right? If something, if whatever you're publishing is kind of in conflict or insensitive to that. So you've got to be aware about what everybody's talking about, even if it initially doesn't impact you. You're right. If something is happening in the culture, a major event is happening and your content um, maybe is making fun of that thing In in a normal week, it would be perfectly fine to make fun of that thing. But if something literally just happened and then you drop that, now people are like, I don't know if I can trust that brand. I don't know if I can trust, you know, whoever put that out. And so you may lose that brand loyalty. Exactly. Exactly. That's a, that's a very uh, important thing to do. The reason why I'm mentioning that is I think a lot of people aren't aware. Mm. Like they're so uh, tunnel vision into their own brand 
they're not really paying attention to the landscape and the environment and the things that are surrounding them. They're just, you know, focused on what they're doing, not understanding that uh, the culture and the environment that can actually help you understand how to, you know, put out the content the right way, the timing of everything. It's almost like a dance in a way. Oh, it is. It, it is. I mean, I think oftentimes if, if you are someone who has kind of cut their teeth in another discipline, you might mistakenly approach the internet digital social as uh, a free promo pathway. And that's really it. You know, you're like, Oh, we're, we're going to tweet this out. People are going to look at it. It's fine. I didn't have to spend to place my ad here and there. It, it actually doesn't work like that. You know, it, it is, it is social for a reason. People are socializing there you as a brand are you promoting or are you socializing mm. right? are you actually having a dialogue with this community with this audience with this audience are you promoting or are you socializing yeah i like that that is that is a gem most people are just promoting they are they are but people come to social networks not to be sold to to be social, you know, and, and that you can promote and sell is kind of a byproduct, but you've always got to think like, it's just, that's, that's not what they're here for. In fact, you don't know where they are. They could be in line at Burger King. They could be in the bathroom. Like when you're looking at the completion rates on your videos, that's also something that you've got to take into account because from a data perspective, you're, you know, you're looking at, you're like, Oh, look at the drop off, look at the drop off. You're not like, does something right there suck? Right. Or is it just that the majority of people are actually consuming this in mobile and it's it's longer than a few seconds or, or a minute or two. So they're not able to watch it all this way. Right. So they might look at a, a little bit of it and then come back. So you've really got to consider all of that when you're analyzing your data. It's really getting into uh, consumer behavior and uh, knowing how people are moving. You, even earlier, you talked about how over you know, the course of your career, monetization is changing, uh, is, is moving. And what that, to me, what that means is how people are consuming that content is changing. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, totally. I mean, we went from a desktop era to a mobile era, and that also even impacted how the websites were designed, right? You used to have your 728 by 90, which is your leaderboard ad up here, and then your 300 by 250 over here, right? Uh, and you started seeing dynamic executions where those two things talk to each other. Maybe something over here reaches out and pulls down something from up here, right? Very expensive ad, right? It takes a lot, of, a lot of coding and things to put that in place. Uh, New York Times used to have a few different iterations on the top of their page, and those are at different price points. When you go to a mobile world where over 80% of your traffic is coming from mobile, how big are those display units? Is that as impactful as it was on desktop? These things have to be changed all the time. So where in 2020 would you say monetization is right now? Monetization is all in video, mobile video. Mobile video, but also subscriptions, right? Because, so look at what's happening right now with COVID. Uh, COVID is hitting the ad market hard, right? We don't know how far down it will go, but you've got guys like Barry Diller from IEC saying that they normally spend $5 billion a year on advertising, and he doesn't think they will spend $1 billion this year. Wow. So in, in that environment, all ad-supported media businesses take a hit. Uh, so I think you're also starting to see 
subscription, really that subscription model come back. Because that also speaks to, uh, you know, the audience saying that this content is valuable enough for me to actually pay for consistently on an ongoing basis. So if subscription is the way to go, I, I follow that. How do you, and this may be more of a personal question for, you know, what I'm building, but how do you take a subscription model and not promote it, but, you know, have the social conversation. And then when people want to have access to that content, that if they decide to, you know, uh, pay for the subscription, they will. How do you create that seamless flow where it doesn't feel like, you know, I'm just branding it to you and I'm just promoting it, but no, I want you to be part of the conversation. Well, that's where, again, the social aspect comes into it. You can be social with this content. You can organically inject snippets of this content into conversations that you see online. And if people actually view those as being valuable, because that's really what it's about, right? If it's valuable, oh, I think I actually just learned something from that. I actually might want some more of that. I actually think I'm going to subscribe. Right? And, and that ultimately what's ha- what happens because that's what on demand is about, right? On demand is when a person has made a personal, val- a personal value decision, right? Like, oh, I want that. I think I can benefit from that, right? Uh, and then if they do it with their, with their card too, it, it's, it's a real validator. So this, this game, I call everything a game, sorry. Mm-hmm. But this game is really all about how much value can you bring? And the reason why I'm, I'm having this realization is with those pilot episodes you would have. If this is valuable enough content, then it's going to attract all the different uh, potential sponsorships to come on board. If I have content and I'm going into a subscription model, well, I need to have enough value placed out there so people can say, oh, well, I'll definitely pay $4.99 or whatever it is per month to have that. This game all comes down to value. Yes, yes, completely. How do you know what's valuable to the end user? How do you research that? How do you find that? How do you know what value is in today's market? Well, uh, first, you've got to identify the end user, right? Because value is going to uh, look different based on the perspective, right? Uh, and that's, that's also something that I think is really tricky, right? Uh, you're talking about cast, casting a net on the world wide web for essentially a niche, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're right. So uh, it, it's kind of like, how do you find each other, right? And, and that's the thing. Like, you're looking for them. They're looking for you as well, right? And that's where communities and networks really come into play, right? So when you look at your, your Twitter and your Twitter list, who out there is talking about what you're talking about, right? Who are they talking to, right? Who, who do they read? Who do they listen to, watch, right? They'll, you'll start to see these patterns. You'll start to see the familiar players as well, right? And I think by inserting yourself in their conversation and convincing them, that you are a thought leader and a valuable resource, that then is what starts to happen. You start to grow. I'm loving this. I'm I'm getting a lot of gems from this conversation. I know there's going to be a lot of people getting into this space, Mm -hmm. or they may be in the space and they may be lost with how everything is shifting. Um, For those who may want to work with you, who Mm -hmm. may 
uh, see this as a really great opportunity to collaborate with you. What does that process look like? How can someone work with you uh, going forward? Uh, starts with a conversation, right? Outreach. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me at KenGibbsJr.com. I'm also Ken Gibbs Jr. on every platform imaginable, right? Um, and I suggest that everyone kind of do that themselves, right? Get your URL, get your name on platforms as well. It helps with your own SEO. Uh, but it starts with a conversation and let me know what your goal is, right? You can do tons of things on the web, but it might not make sense for you to do them all, right? Who are you trying to reach? For what? For how long? Is this, is this a one-time thing? Is it just awareness? Or do you need to have an ongoing conversation with them, right? From that conversation will then come a summary of the steps that I think we need to take in a campaign, whether it be within a finite window or something that I can then work with you to launch and then give you instructions to maintain. I love it. I definitely love it. Everybody, uh, you know, go reach out, uh, make the conversation happen. We thank you for coming on the platform. Before you go, if you have a few minutes, we had an opportunity to talk before and you mentioned something to me at the end of our conversation. And I want to make sure that we at least get a little bit of it on air. Uh, you mentioned the Combat Jack Show. Ah, yeah. And so it didn't come up in your, your history, but I can't just let you go without at least <laughs> letting people know. Tell us your involvement uh, with that platform and uh, just the one or two experiences you had. Okay. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. I did work very closely with Reggie Yose, Dearly Departed Combat Jack. Um, and during, so the point in which that began on the journey that I described to you was when um, I was in between jobs and starting my family. Okay. Right. Uh, so, you know, we had cashed out the contracts at Essence. Um, I'm thinking about what am I going to do? I had, I had an idea to do a show and it was going to be basically like a, a complete guerrilla operation where we would just imagine going on to 125th and setting up an impromptu like late night desk with a host and a celebrity, just, just doing an interview right there. Right? right. This is crazy idea that I had. And I, so I'm talking to various people about being a host. And my guy, Eve, Eve Solomon, had gone to um, Brown with Reggie. And he introduced me to Reggie. And my show idea fizzled out. I, I got other projects, didn't bring it to life. But Reggie and I stayed in touch. And Reggie, um, Reggie had four kids had been for those who don't know, you know, he had been big in the legal game. Um, he had been uh, um, attorney for Diddy and those guys early mm -hmm. in their career had done work with Jay and all of them as well. So he, he was sitting on a little bit of something, right? I and mean, he could afford to be out of work at that time because it was just like I was burnt out with the law game. I wanted to do something different. And he had four kids though. I had had my first child and was out of work and was really just approaching him on black man mentorship. Like, how are you doing this? You know, like, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do, and, but you're over here exploring other things in life, right? Um, so I really admired him for that. And when he called me about the Combat Jack show, he was like, hey, you know, we're working on the show. I want you to come check it out. Let me know what you think, yada, yada. I was like, okay, cool. Um, you know, I'm, I'm at home with, with the kid all day. They were recording out of Brooklyn on Wednesday. 
uh, it became known in my house as Homeboy Wednesday because that was like <laughs> daddy's only night out, right? right, right. I would go get a bunch of beers, drinks, and I would just bring it to the studio and just hang out with him, right? And be like, okay, you know, what are you doing? Where do you want to go with this? Or oh, I think you should do this. I think you should do this. Uh, because I had had a podcast while I was at AOL like a decade prior called More Than Words, uh, which I might republish, so we'll see. Yeah, let um, me know. Okay. <laughs> And, and so at that point, I was like, you know, I, I had long been on podcasts, right? I, I thought they were great. It was, was just, I didn't understand why the Black audience wasn't embracing it. From a media perspective, I believe that underserved communities are always the first to gravitate towards opportunities to express themselves because they recognize the limits, right? So when... Uh, you saw the, the VHS cassette, the DVD game, you know, with French Montana, all mm-hmm. those guys. The web ultimately became the same thing. I didn't understand why podcasts didn't get there, right? Um, but in working with Reggie and them, I thought they could. Um, the, the cast of characters that they have with Dallas and Pete and Matt Raz and everyone, A-King, to me, it really was the Howard Stern show, the urban version of it. And I was a huge fan of Howard Stern. When I was in Massachusetts commuting, I used to listen to it every day. So I, I really, really liked what they were doing. And, but, um, you know, the, there's an ecosystem. There's an ecosystem out there that moves information around and it, it creates influencers, right? It helps us understand kind of what's going on. And audio was not a part of that ecosystem at all, right? Um, just your, your, small, your small players for music to be embedded on blogs, but that was it, right? Audio had not factored in yet at all. So he had um, Chris, Chris Morrow, who's a programming director here in the New York area on the, on the radio side, really helping him handle the audio operation. And I was like, you know, we got to get this in the ecosystem, right? So let me do this. I, I got some time on my hands. I'll bring in some people who I know. We'll put together a, a camera crew and a video aspect of this. So each week you do the audio show, I'll do the video part of it, and we'll kind of tag team it from that end. So that's one of my guys, Bruce Sinclair, some, some other folks actually out of Boston mm-hmm. to come up each week and record the show. If somebody couldn't make it, I'd be holding the camera myself, right? Uh, and we would, we would edit it, fast track, and make sure that we were hitting the web when the audio was hitting as well, right? Because also, we wanted to use the video to drive subscriptions of the audio and also uh, more revenue towards that as well. Right. Um, I'm, not, I'm not big into like the love and hip hops and all that stuff. I understand their social resonance. You can't, uh, so I'm in Jersey. And if there's a fire or something like that, the siren goes off. But also because of COVID in the afternoons, they've been like, they've been setting the siren off to like honor the medical workers, what have you. Okay. Give that a, a second to stop. Oh, you're fine. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, so got the crew from Boston to come down and actually record the video. We made sure that we were in sync hitting the web at the same time each week. Um, and like I said, I'm not into the love and hip hop stuff, but mm-hmm. I understand the resonance. And Fab, Fab was, was on the show and he was also on love and hip hop at that point. Right, and right. So he's, he started speaking to, I, I guess there was, there was like a, a storyline between him and his lady and something that had gone on, yada, yada, and was big in the blogs, big in the blogs, right? Um, so 
this was our opportunity to get the brand in the ecosystem, right? Uh, so as soon as we got the videos, I basically just started sending it out to bloggers, got on YBF, next thing you know, it's history, right? The Combat Jack show really does become just a part of the lexicon. Next thing you know, everybody starts launching podcasts, right? I'm sure a lot of people talk about Serial and the success. So Serial um, definitely got a lot of attention to the podcast space as well. But, you know, um, what I saw and I had theories about before, but the Combat Jack show thoroughly validated it for me. It's really just the power and influence of Black culture, period. Um, these guys were sitting around. Oftentimes, they didn't have a guest, right? Uh, just having conversation. Conversations yeah. about urban issues, news, what have you. Um, they, they went on to be, a, they were acknowledged by far more people than actually came on the show, right? Um, and it spawned an entire network right of other important voices that that are now throughout the space on that network and beyond so it was um you know i like so I, when i started on the combat jack show or working with those guys and if you look at some of the background if you look at some of the videos on the youtube channel you'll like see me just sitting on the crates in the background <laughs> yeah right? I'm, I'm going over there i'm gonna look for you too Okay, check it out. You can't miss me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, I started, I wasn't working, um, and then I got the gig at BET. And I tried to bring, I tried to bring the Combat Jack show with me, right? Uh, I really thought the network would benefit from something like that. And I also saw uh, the position that the show was having in the culture at that yeah, moment. Yeah, that would have been nice. They were clearly on to something. Yeah. Clearly on to something. Um, but interestingly enough, you know, the uh, leadership thought otherwise. And in here is where I think you start, you start to see other brands, um, you know, take a bit of a stronger foothold in the culture, right? Because yeah. BET didn't take it, but Complex Networks did. Right. Com so Complex Networks had a show right with the combat jack show yeah. taken out of brooklyn right uh so it, it, it was interesting to me but it was also just a learning lesson right really just a learning lesson what i what i picked up from that and I, and I know we're past our time um one thing that i have not been doing uh cause i believe in just being you know completely transparent and honest is not sending you know our content out to blogs and letting them know you know hey this is what we're doing uh, the, the video side for us is just, is, is new. Mm. Um, so I'm not too far behind, but I think that is something I am going to start doing is finding, you know, finding the blogs out there um, and connecting with them and then, you know, sending the information to them. Is there a, a, the best way possible to send it to them? How do you alert them of what you're trying to, to do? Start, like I said, start that conversation. I okay. would say uh, include multiple people on a blast to bloggers, right? Start that individual conversation with each one of those people there because you're, you're all in the same space as content creators, right? Okay. Blogs need something to write about. That is their business. That is their inventory. We can't all write about the same thing, right? In some instances, we will, right? COVID's going on. Everybody writing about COVID. The Grammys, the Oscars, big tentpole events. 
everyone will have a unique perspective on. But again, that is their value, okay. right? That unique perspective. So you creating this relationship with them helps them continue to craft something that's unique. Awesome. Thank you so much. You've given me at least 10 things I need to go do after this conversation. Um, and I'm literally, once we're done with this conversation, I'm going to go start doing them right away. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us uh, your story, sharing with us uh, the, the gems that are out there, the opportunities. And you do have an open door whenever you want to come back and um, you know, talk about the culture, things that are going on, talk about the different brand moves that are happening. I love to actually sit there and watch, you know, how did BT respond to this and how did this company respond to that? I do that anyway. Um, so I, I, I love that type of conversation. So thank you so much for uh, coming on Black Equity. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks so much for the open door invitation. I would love to come back. I'm really curious as to, you know, what brands are going to survive COVID and in what state they'll be. I think media brands in particular, we're, they're going to have to, and they'll be forced to re-examine their relationship with artists, right? Uh, D-Nice, Teddy Riley, Babyface. What do they need a BET for, right? What do they need an MTV for? Right, like if they're putting together four million people on their own, right? I think you you've really got to re-examine the relationship because otherwise, like these guys are rich already, right? Yeah. They, they go make their own platform and completely cut you out of it, right? So again, everyone is re-examining that value. I was going to say, you know, watching this Teddy Riley and Babyface uh, battle, there's only one last step that we have to go go to, and it's cutting out Instagram. Well, that's where Badu is now. Well, Badu rented a satellite, right? And is in complete control of her live broadcast. Mm. Check it out. Check it out. Yeah, I was actually- I didn't know that. Yeah, well, you know, I think people saw the first one when she did, but then I, then I think there was just so much live stuff going on that it kind of got drowned out with everything else. There's like five live concerts a night now. But she she is really working on cutting them out completely and monetizing it. And I think for her especially, it happened because this whole pandemic kind of cut off the tour that she had planned. Mm, so she's just doing the tour from the satellite feed. Exactly, from oh. the comfort of her home in Houston, right? Crystal clear, no middleman. And after she does this, you, you know she's going to spread the knowledge. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to look into that. I did not know that. So thank you for uh, making me aware. I think that's one of the keys to this game is being very aware of all the moves that are happening so you can get ahead of the trend so you don't get left behind. Yeah, yeah, I mean, hey, the world is going to be a different place after COVID and me personally, that's how I'm looking at all opportunities. Like I'm not, you know, for our parents, it was a nuclear fallout, right? I think for us, like it's the germ, right? And now that we've kind of, where we're seeing the curve flatten in other places, what have you. So we're almost on the other side of it. And it happened so quickly, right? Like think about the degree to which we've been impacted and how fast that happened. It's yeah. almost normalized. So now we've got to get businesses that can continue to run yeah. when this happens. Yeah, it's no more waiting. Exactly. It's, this is what it's going to be, and we, we got to create uh, opportunities. you got to create revenue. So how are you going to move? How are you going to you know, be in this space? And you're right. I think certain brands will be washed away, 
Maybe new brands would be popped up, but the ones that were uh, properly aligned, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll stand the test of time. So it's going to be interesting to see well, who was that. So I'll be paying close attention. I know you will too. Indeed, indeed. Thank you so much, Ken Gibbs, for coming on the show. Uh, this is a truly fruitful conversation. Uh, we'll, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Likewise. Thanks, DJ. We are truly grateful for today's guest. If you are interested in becoming an approved Black Equity Strategic Partner with this company or one in the past, simply send us an interest inquiry to the following email, djm at djmotri.com. Once again, djm at djmotri.com. Let us know your name, your company, your services, and which guest you are interested in partnering with. As an approved partner, you will have exclusive access to our network and have first opportunity at future partnerships as well. Thank you for tuning in and be sure to join us on the next episode of the Black Equity Podcast.